Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus. Does anybody else get nervous when I preach? <laughs> just, just me then? Great. Now I'm more nervous than I was. All right, well, I'm, I'm risking my manhood this morning by beginning with an illustration from the movie Miss Congeniality. I probably will never be able to look at myself again in the mirror. Wasn't that great to begin with. So, so if you're not familiar with this movie, this is a 2000 uh, movie release with Sandra Bullock who pray, plays this uh, character called Gracie Hart. And she's this undercover FBI agent who's kind of tomboyish and unrefined. And she's got to infiltrate the beauty pageant scene. And so she gets all this training and she uh, goes into these pageants. And in this one particular pageant, the MC is asking every contestant this one question. What is the one thing our society needs most? And then contestant after contestant after contestant says, world peace, and the crowd cheers. World peace, and the crowd cheers. And then Gracie Hart, FBI agent turned beauty pageant contestant, gets up there, and they present the same question to her. What does our society need most? And she replies, harsher punishments for parole violators. <laughs> and the crowd is silent. And then there's long, awkward pause, and then she says, and world peace, and the crowd goes wild again. And so there's, there's this sense in which we, we all love and long for peace. And the thought about world peace is, is almost euphoric. In other words, we, we desperately want to see no war, no conflict, no friction between people. But this miscongeniality world peace that we seem to be chasing after is temporal. And the truth is there is no real peace, no lasting eternal peace without the presence of God. And so if we are seeking to make peace in a particular area of our lives or a country or in our own hearts, we can't do that apart from Christ. And when we begin to look at peace in the Scriptures, it's much deeper than this beauty pageant world peace. It's eternal. It reaches farther. And so, I want to begin by just talking a little bit about what is biblical peace? What is the peace that the Bible talks about? Well, first, peace as the Bible, as Scriptures teach, is an issue of the heart. John 14, 27, Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And we see Jesus connecting His peace that He gives to affecting the heart of His people. And so it's not just everything's okay it's really a condition of our heart. Second, peace can't be the absence of conflict. And when we hear 
the, the beauty contestants say world peace, that's where our minds go, right? It's an absence of conflict. Everything's okay. No one's fighting. But a chapter after Jesus said those words I just read, after Jesus promises to give His peace to His people, in John 15, He says this, If they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. Okay, Jesus, so which one is it? You're going to give me your peace? Or am I going to be persecuted? Because those two things don't sound like they're going to go together very well. Like oil and water. But again, if we go back to understand peace is a condition of our heart, then even in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of friction, we can have peace. The peace of Christ. Peace with God. And so this peace that Jesus gives, and it's hard, to, it's hard to wrap our minds around, it's hard to give a definition to this, and so this is a working definition you can add to, take from, um, correct me after the sermon's over. But it's the peace that the Bible speaks of is this confidence and security of knowing that God will work out everything for our good. This peace is a byproduct of our relationship with the Father. And the deeper the intimacy, uh, your intimacy is with the Father, the deeper your understanding of peace with the Father is. So apart from a relationship with the Father and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there's no real peace. Even in the absence of conflict, if Christ is not there, there's no real lasting peace. And I think that's what the angels in Luke 2 were trying to communicate. Remember when they come to the shepherds and they say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom God has pleased. They're announcing the birth of Christ and what they're trying to say is real peace is finally here. It's finally attainable. This Messiah that we've been waiting on, who's going to not only bring peace to the world, but peace to our hearts, peace to our souls, more importantly, peace with our Creator. It's here. But it only comes to those who have saving faith in the Lord. That's exactly what the angels were saying when they said, this peace is for those whom God is pleased so peace is for God's people. It's an attitude of the heart. It affects the mind and the soul. So when we talk about peace being in our hearts, that's not the only thing that it affects. It also transforms our mind and brings peace and rest to our souls. It's knowing, it's having a confidence of, of, that God is good, that He's for us, and that He's working all things for our good. It's that whole idea of Romans 8.28. It's knowing that in every circumstance, whether it's good or bad, God is working all things for our good. The Bible speaks a lot about different kinds of peace. It talks about peace with God in Romans 5. Paul writes about Christ, the Prince of Peace, reconciling us to the Father. The Bible talks about peace with other people, and Christ calls us to that life on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the sons of God. The Bible even talks about peace within ourselves. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 26.3 that the Lord keeps 
the man whose mind is stayed on the Lord, who trusts in Him, He keeps him in perfect peace. And so there's this direct correlation with peace of heart, the peace of Christ, and our minds being set on our relationship with our Father. The Scriptures also talk a lot about how that peace is delivered to God's people, that sometimes God delivers it through His power, sometimes He delivers it through His promises, sometimes He delivers that peace through our partner, the Holy Spirit, and then sometimes He delivers it through His providence. And so, all these different kinds of peace that the Lord provides and all these different kind of ways that the Lord delivers that peace to His people, it's overwhelming. And to preach on that would be a sermon that you wouldn't want to sit through. It would be so long. So here's where I want us to focus today. I want us to focus on how God's providence can bring us internal peace of heart. Okay? So here's our main point. Knowing the truth of God's providence can help encourage us to greater faith and less anxiety thus producing in us peace of heart that will affect our minds and souls. All right, again, main point. Knowing the truth of God's providence can help encourage us to greater faith and less anxiety, thus producing in us peace of heart that will affect our minds and our souls. That's what we're after today. That's what I want you to see. That's what I want you to take away from our time together this morning. So let me pray for our time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to just look at your word, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth, open our hearts to receive that truth. And Father, may this not just be head knowledge. Holy Spirit, would you work it into the depths of our heart that our faith might increase, our love for you might grow, and we might be more faithful to go out and proclaim the gospel to those in need. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I think the first question we need to explore, and we're going to get to Exodus here in just a minute, is what, what is God's providence? Because that word is never actually used in Scripture. Although the, the, the idea of it is everywhere, from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith devotes an entire chapter to the providence of God. And it, I'm going to sum up, it's a, it's a fairly lengthy chapter, but essentially, this is what the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, how it understands, how, the, how those Westminster divines understood the providence of God. Essentially, it's that every detail of life in the world is under God's control, and He's working it all to bring Himself glory. That's what providence means, that God is constantly working all things to His glory. Now... Here's some, if, if that news could get better, here it is, okay? At the very end of that chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, this is, this is the last sentence in the chapter. It says, As the providence of God does, in general, reach to all creatures. In other words, those who are lost, who are outside the family of God, and it reaches to those who are inside the family, inside the kingdom of God. It reaches to them in general. It says, so after a most special manner, it takes care of His church, capital C, and disposes all things to the good thereof. So what, what the Westminster Confession of Faith is saying is, look, 
God's control goes not just, it's not just, in, it's, it's everywhere. It's not just His people. He controls everything, everywhere, everybody, lost and saved. But then they say, but here's some special news just for the believers. Just for God's chosen people. The Bible, the Scriptures teach that in a very special way, God is organizing our lives for our good and His glory. Every little part, every mundane Monday, all of that is part of God's plan to bring Himself glory and to do good to His people. In other words, His providence to us is special. And so, is God in control of all things? Now, we, we love to rest in that as good Reformed Presbyterians and the sovereignty of God. He controls all things. But for whatever reason, we don't often live in that way. But listen to this list of things the Lord has controlled over the years. This is from the Bible. 1 Kings 17, the Lord sends ravens to feed Elijah. So He controls the ravens. In Jonah, He appoints a plant that comes up and covers Jonah. Then He appoints this worm to go and take care of the plant so that Jonah is again exposed to the elements. In Psalm 105, the psalmist writes, God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. Mark 4, when Jesus calms the storm, His disciples say, Even the wind and the sea obey Him. Daniel said that God removes kings and sets up kings. And Mark 1, after Christ casts out demons, the people are in awe and they say, Look, even the, the evil spirits do what He says. And in Hebrews 1, it says that Christ upholds the universe by the word of His power. So God's providence does mean that He absolutely controls all things, but it's more than that. It's, it's, he controls all things to bring you good and to bring Himself glory. And He's always working. And I know that's hard to believe sometimes because we look at the circumstances of our life and we think, this dude has gone on a lunch break, right? He's out for coffee. Look at the situation I'm in. There's no way He's working for me right now. There's, there's no way He is organizing all the parts of my life for my good and His glory. Just look at this mess that I'm in. But the psalmist says that God never sleeps. He never slumbers. He knows you. He knows your needs. And He is constantly at work providing for those needs. He's at work solving your problems. He's at work solving the problems that you don't have the answers to. He's at work solving the problems that you don't even know you have yet. That is what God's providence is. Now, how do I know that? Well, let's go to Exodus. And so these scriptures are really, they're, they're not a profound teaching on the providence of God, but just an example of how the providence of God can bring us peace. All right, look at Exodus chapter 1. I want to read the first few uh, well, verses 8 through 14. Exodus 1, 8 through 14. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. 
And if war breaks out, then they'll join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now flip over to chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. It's one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Just that one little phrase right there at the end, and God knew. Here here Israel is in one of their, their darkest moments. They're being absolutely oppressed in slavery in Egypt. And it wasn't like God woke up that morning that these people cried out and said, oh man, what, what's going on here? You know, it seems like my people may be in some kind of distress, okay? He, he knew this day was coming. He knew this day was going to be here before the Israelites knew that day was going to get here. And for 400 plus years, God had been planning the remedy for this particular problem. 400 plus years. And you say, Adam, are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. Okay, I know that comes as a shock, but this time I really am serious. All right, so here's, here's what he says. He says he remembers the covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and he knew. So way back in Genesis 12, you don't have to turn there, God took Abraham from his pagan country, his pagan family, and made him his own. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you, make your name great, so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then we come to Genesis 15, where God, in a sense, ratifies that covenant with Abraham. And God is so serious about His commitment to Abraham, He takes on the the punishment for breaking the covenant when He walks through those cut animals as a smoking pot and a flaming torch. God essentially is saying, look, if if you don't uphold your end of the bargain, I'm going to take the punishment for that. Now, Abraham doesn't see those promises fulfilled in his day. And... But God promises Abraham a son, Isaac, in Genesis 17. Isaac is born in Genesis 21. And then Genesis 22. Abraham is asked to take Isaac and sacrifice him to the Lord. Now, I have no idea all that was going through Abraham's mind at that point. But you parents in here, and you grandparents in here, can have a sense of dread in your stomach, right, when you read that story and you think about being called to sacrifice your child on the altar for the Lord. 
And I'm sure there were moments as he's climbing that mountain that, that he experienced a lack of peace, that he experienced some personal darkness in a sense. Now, he's walking by faith. He's going through with that, okay? And, and that's not to be taken lightly. He, he, is, he is believing the Lord. But I can't imagine each and every step was just a piece of cake, that this obedience was easy. And so he, he, maybe he's struggling. Lord, this, this situation looks impossible. How in the world, five chapters ago, seven chapters ago, you promised to give us a people, a land to make us a great nation, and here we are going to sacrifice the heir to those promises. This is, I don't understand this. You ever been in one of those situations? Lord, I don't understand what's going on. I don't get it. And you keep plodding forward as Abraham did. And you know the story. At the exact right place, at the exact right time, God provides a ram. And Isaac is spared. The ram is sacrificed. And we all breathe a sigh of relief to some degree. And we see God at work even in those moments where we didn't have the answers. So, later, Jacob is born to Isaac, this younger son who is God's chosen seed of Isaac. And God renews the covenant to some degree uh, in Genesis 28 with Jacob, saying your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You'll spread abroad to the west, the east, the north, and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, again, Jacob didn't see these promises fulfilled. But Jacob had a son, Joseph. Joseph, part of the family, part of this lineage of, of being a blessed nation, to, be, to bless others, to have a great name, to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And Joseph had a cush life, remember? Okay, you're not awake. You, rem you remember Joseph's cush life, right? Yeah. You should be doing this. No, it was, not, it was not a good experience, okay? He was thrown into a pit. He was sold into slavery. If that's your idea of a cush life, you need a vacation, okay? Um, a real one. And, and so in these moments where Joseph is, is in this pit and being, being essentially sold into slavery, not essentially, he was, sold into slavery by his brothers, I mean, is there moments in his life where he said, okay, Lord, now I'm part of this, this promised people. Where's my great nation? Where's my great name? Remember, you said you were going to bless those who bless me. You were going to curse those who curse me. This ain't looking so good. I'm in this pit. Now I'm sold into slavery. I'm headed off to this foreign country. And again, there's got to be this lack of peace. There's got to be this peace that's just out of his grasp. Like, I want to believe, Lord. I want to I sense your presence here. I want to be able to trust that you are good and that you're working all things for my good. But this is pretty bad. And again, you know the rest of the story. That God uses Joseph to interpret prisoners' dreams that wins him some renown with Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, come in, interpret my dreams. He ends up putting him over uh, his household, makes him part of the leader of the Egyptian nation. 
And that opens the door for Joseph to be able to save his family from famine and bring his whole family in. Let's look at Exodus chapter 1, the first seven verses. So these, oh, and good luck with all the, the reading of the names. I'll do my best. These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So all this time that Joseph thinks, man, Lord, where are you? He's really opening the door to save his entire family from famine. But that's not the only thing that the Lord was up to. God was at work fulfilling that promise because Israel is growing. People are becoming more numerous. And yet the, the bigger they got, the more they were oppressed in slavery. And so they, they cry out. They say, God, here we are. Your promised people, we're enslaved. We definitely don't have any peace. I mean, if you're in bondage to slavery... There's, there's no way they felt a sense of peace. And so they begin to cry out. Now in the midst of these people who are crying out is this woman who's worried about her son being killed because the Pharaoh has just passed this new law. And she decides she's going to make a little basket, put him in that, and shove him out into the river. Now again, moms, man, your heart's got to break in that situation. Like, Lord, I know you're good. I know you've taken care of us to this point. But this is hard. This is a dark day. I don't have the answers. I have no idea what's about to happen as I shove this little baby out until the bull rushes. But again, you know the rest of the story. Pharaoh's daughter finds the basket. Adopts Moses. Goes looking for someone to help nurse and take care of the baby. Finds Moses' mother brings her into the temple or into the palace as well. And it is there that Moses grows up, learns how to lead, and eventually will, God will use him to rescue his people from slavery. They cried out that one particular day. But 400 plus years earlier, God was already working on the solution to their problem. You see that? Because he, it's Abraham, it's Isaac, it's Jacob, it's Joseph. Then Joseph brings in all his brothers, including Levi, we just read. And guess who's Moses is a descendant of? Levi. And so all this time, the Lord has been orchestrating every little part of this story leading up to this day when he says, enough is enough, let my people go, and out they go. It's incredible to think about. 400 years in the making, the solution to this problem. Now, you and I are here, and we've already agreed we, we've got issues. There's, there's darkness in our life that we don't, we don't know how to shine a light into. There's, there's brokenness that we don't know how to overcome. We're worried about situations that we have no answers to whatsoever. And it shakes our peace. And we think 
man, God, what, what are you doing? Where are you? But we, it's in those moments that we've got we to gotta double down as believers. We've got to take heart that God is at work for us. We've got to pick up our Bibles and read these kind of stories where God is faithful to His people. He's good. He was already at work solving this problem that the Israelites had 400 years before they even knew they had a problem. That's what the providence of God is. He holds all things together for your good. These are not just Bible stories. These are God's faithfulness to His people, and that is you. He is just as faithful to you as He is to the Israelites. And Paul writes in Romans 8.32, he said, God didn't spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for you. Why would He not also give you all things? In other words, Paul's saying, look, He's taking care of your greatest problem. Your separation between the Father. Your sinfulness and His holiness has created this great chasm. And Paul says the way he fixed that was to kill his own son. Now, if he didn't withhold that from you, why would he not also give you all things? Why would he not also come into the midst of your darkness and your brokenness and your confusion and you're not having any of the answers and work all that out for your good and His glory. Before the foundation of the world, God planned on saving His people from themselves by giving His only Son to die for their sins. He told the apostles that. And they walked with Him for three years and He tried to communicate that truth to them. But then they came to the cross. And they watched Jesus get crucified. And again, it's a dark day. It is literally a dark day. But emotionally and spiritually, they've got to be thinking, this is not how we thought this would turn out. This is, I didn't think I would ever grow, go through anything like this. And maybe you're thinking the exact same thing right now. Luke writes that at about the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour when the sun's light failed. So it is literally a dark day. It's the darkest day in history. Do you have any idea what the very next line is after he talks about the darkness? This is, just, this is good. The very next sentence Luke writes is this. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Man, if that doesn't... Do something for your soul. You need to leave here this afternoon and, and get on your knees. Because what Luke is saying in the darkest moment of the history of the world, God made a way for you to come to Him. In that dark moment, the veil is torn in two, and God is saying, Come. You're heavy laden, you're weary, you got questions that. You don't have the answers to. You're going through something that you don't know how to navigate. Come. Know my peace. Cast your cares and anxieties at my feet. Take on my easy yoke. In the midst of that darkness, in God's amazing providence, 
He made a way for you and I to have peace. Real, lasting, eternal, non-miscongeniality peace. Dark days are hard, guys. We've been there. We've done that. I shared one or two of those with you via email this week of my own life where you just feel like, Lord, I don't know what in the world's going on. And I'm tired and I'm worn out. And what are you up to? I love the story of Zacchaeus. I'm not going to go back and read it. I'm going to give you the reference. Luke 19, 1 through 6. Jesus goes into Jericho. Zacchaeus, this short little tax collector, hated thief. I got to see who this, who this Jesus guy is. And he climbs up that tree and he sees Jesus. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house. And Luke writes that Zacchaeus received him joyfully. And so I, a lot of times I think, you know, like the tree doesn't get enough publicity in the story. I mean, how did it get there? Somebody plant that tree, the bird dropped some seed there, we don't know, but I know that it was there for a purpose. I don't know if it was their own purpose, but it was there for a purpose. And that purpose was so that Zacchaeus could see Jesus. What are you going through right now? Because it's a tree. That's a weird sentence. It's an opportunity for you to see Jesus more clearly. And I don't know how this situation that you might be in got there, but it's there on purpose. Because that's how God's providence works. And this tree, whatever it is you're going through, is your opportunity to see Jesus and joyfully receive Him. And maybe you're here and you've never done that before. You've never seen Jesus as Savior and Lord and put your faith and your trust in Him. And so you need to see Him in a real way for the very first time so that you can experience that eternal, lasting peace. Or maybe you're just here, and when I mention darkness and brokenness and hurt, you're like, I'm swimming in that right now. Well, this is an opportunity for you to see Jesus. And it's not easy. And it's not fun. But it's for your good. So that you and I can be more conformed to the image of Christ. We can better exalt Jesus with our lives. Better point people to the cross. That same God that rescued Israel from Egyptian slavery through His providence is the same God that through His providence rescued Zacchaeus from his slavery to sin. That same God is at work for you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God that was at work for the Israelites in Exodus is the same God who is at work for you right now in Dothan, Alabama in 2019. He's working all things, even the hard things, the scary things, so that you can see Jesus more clearly. And in seeing Christ and knowing Him, putting your faith in Him, you can know the eternal peace of God. And that's my prayer for us. My prayer is that when we see Jesus, we'll do like Zacchaeus. We'll welcome Him, receive Him joyfully. And in doing so, 
peace of God will guard our heart and it will squash our anxieties. Church, we need to trust Him. We need to trust Him, not just in the good times and the easy times, but when our backs are against the wall, when everything seems like it's fallen in on us, because He has been at work to bring you His peace before the world ever began, because He loves you and He is good. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness toward us. We thank You for Your providence. Thank You for the Scriptures, where we can read these stories of You working for Your people, for You, uh, Lord, ordaining every moment of their lives for their good and Your glory. Uh, Father, we just pray that whatever it is we're going through, Lord, may it be an opportunity for us to see You more clearly, to worship You more, to, to grow in our faithfulness. Lord, You know the hearts here. Would You, Holy Spirit, be at work mightily in these situations that have come to these folks' minds? And would You bring us real peace because we know You're at work? We know You control all things. You, we know that You're good and You're working all things for our good and Your glory. Would You help us to remember that truth, to know that truth, for that truth to bring peace to our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.